This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear Abraham Cho preach from 2 Corinthians on the spiritual power of weakness. Pastor Cho currently serves as Senior Director of Training for Redeemer City to City, He formerly served on the pastoral staff of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. This sermon was originally preached at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen to Pastor Cho as he preaches on the spiritual power of weakness. Scripture reading for this evening is taken from the second letter of the Apostle Paul uh, to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 14 through 3, verse 5. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It is an honor to be (coughs) delivering God's word to you this evening uh, at this assembly. Uh, I know after last night and now tonight, I know many of you are thinking, um, uh, have this in mind, and the question that you're probably wondering is, at what point is it just too much beard up there? (laughs) Brother Russ and I were debating what the limits of those things are, but remembering back to last night, after listening to Brother Russ bring us the word yesterday, uh, it reminded me of this time where my family and I, we were on vacation and we were visiting uh, a church and, uh, you know, we went through the entire service, the pastor preached a great sermon and one of my sons came up to me right after the service ended and he said, Dad, 
how come you don't preach like that? And I said, well, preach like what? And he said, you know, like interesting and funny. So I just want to set expectations this evening. It will be neither interesting nor funny. Uh, the theme for our assembly this year has been proclaiming the unhindered kingdom. Uh, and it takes, it takes the theme from the final words of the book of Acts, chapter 28, where Paul is in Rome in chains, a prisoner uh, in the capital city of the empire, in the place of power and influence. And yet here is Paul in a place of weakness. In the book of Acts, the word of God has the audacity to say that the gospel went forward with boldness and without hindrance. The hindrances that look impossible to us today are no hindrances at all. I've chosen from a text this evening, 2 Corinthians, which many scholars would agree is Paul's treatise on the spiritual power of weakness. And in Corinth at the time, the greatest hindrance that was facing the church in Corinth was not a hindrance that came from the powers outside of the church. The greatest hindrance was how leaders were tempted to use power inside the church. And so Paul writes his most emotional, his most impassioned, his most urgent epistle. And his plea to the church is this, that the one area where the church ought to look least like the world is the way in which the church uses its power. And I believe that is an urgent word for us today in our own cultural moment. Uh, David Brooks in an article uh, in The Atlantic many months ago <clears throat> just remarked that what we're witnessing today in our society is collapsing levels of social trust. That in our society, people trust institutions, leaders, governments, churches, less than they've ever done in our history. That surveys would show, uh, a statement in a survey says this, leaders, institutions, neighbors can be trusted to do what's right most of the time. In 1964, 77% of respondents trusted government to do the right thing most or all the time. Today, it's 33%. These collapsing levels of trust are also what fuels our factions and the tribalism that seems to emerge, not just mistrust of those institutions over there, but the tribes and factions that can form within institutions themselves, where those that we don't agree with are not just wrong, they are evil, where those we don't agree with are not just mistaken, they merely simply cannot be trusted. It's a crisis of trust, a crisis of leadership in our society today. And this is what Corinth was facing. Paul was hearing that there were rival teachers, false teachers that had infiltrated the ranks of the church in Corinth. These were sophisticated men, impressive, charismatic, influential. They came with the endorsements of celebrity intellectuals. They were gaining power in the church in Corinth and they were challenging the authenticity of Paul's authority. And in response to that situation, Paul's response 
is this most impassioned letter where over 13 chapters he wants to tell the church true power in the kingdom of God will look like weakness in the world. In a world obsessed with power, the way of the unhindered kingdom of God is the way of weakness. In our text before us today, Paul uses three vivid images to get this same point across again and again and again. So let's look at each one of those images. The first image that he uses is the image of a very strange procession. Verse 14 of chapter 2 where he says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The term that Paul uses there for triumphal procession is a very technical term that refer, refu, refers to the ceremonial procession that was given to a Roman army after they came back after a conquest. So after a great and remarkable victory of Roman power, of Roman of strength, there would be a spectacle of triumphal procession through the streets of Rome. And it was a spectacle that was meant to flaunt the strength, to boast the power of the military of Rome while parading the weakness and humiliation of its enemies. It was a procession that was meant to deify the state, the empire of Rome, while degrading all who would oppose them. In this procession, oftentimes it'd be led uh, by a chariot and on the chariot was often either the general that won the victory or the emperor himself riding on the chariot. And the chariot would be drawn by horses at times. Uh, history shows us, the evidence says that there are times where even elephants were used to draw the chariot where the emperor would ride. Following the emperor were officers and soldiers, the one who fought bravely and valiantly, who had won glory in battle for their empire, for their country, would follow the emperor and the general be followed by priests with incense to the gods so that if you couldn't see the procession, you would smell power and victory. And at the very end of this long procession were prisoners, often beaten, bloody, often naked, in chains, paraded through the streets of Rome, utterly humiliated. And the procession would oftentimes go through Rome and end at the temple where these prisoners would be put to death as a sacrifice to the gods. It was a brutal, triumphalistic display of patriotism. But it's an image that would have been very familiar. Sights and sounds would have been very vivid, vivid to Paul's readers. And now here's Apostle Paul seeking to defend his authority as an apostle. And he uses this image of this triumphal procession. Now, if you're the apostle Paul and you're trying to defend your own rightful authority in the church, you are an apostle of the church. If you were trying to defend your own authority as an apostle, where would you place yourself in this parade? Where would you place yourself to assert the rightful power and authority that you have. Well, we would place ourselves in the chariot, wouldn't we? To say, this is rightful authority. This is strength. This is power. 
But is that where Paul places himself? No, verse 14. Paul says, it's Christ who leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is not the victor in the chariot. Paul is the defeated, the humiliated, the one in chains. Paul is saying, my authority as an apostle is genuine, not because I'm powerful and strong and impressive. My power and authority as an apostle is genuine because I am the defeated and the humiliated, and therefore this authority can be trusted. And the point is clear, that if you take the lens of the gospel and you apply it to power, it inverts all those relationships. And the gospel single-handedly takes the imagery of military procession and completely subverts it. Because true power in the kingdom of God looks like weakness in the world. The adamant anti-triumphalism of this triumphalistic procession is utterly breathtaking. And it's a word to the church. And the one area where the church ought to look the least like the world is the way in which it uses its power. Uh, Michael Horton, who teaches systematic theology at Westminster, California, I heard him in a talk say, you know, early Christians, when they were the suffering minority, when they were on the margins of the Roman Empire, would proclaim Christ as Lord, Christus Dominus, and it was gospel truth. But when Christians became the crusaders, carrying swords and lances, and cried out, Christus Dominus, Christ is Lord, those true words no longer rang true. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, what kind of procession should the church participate in? How are you and I seeking to use our power within the institution of the church? In a time where, in the eyes of the world, the image of the church that has been implanted in the imagination of the world is the image of a procession of men and women carrying Jesus save sign while committing political violence on the Capitol. What kind of procession must we be? How must the church use its power? We must return to the procession that we see here in the word of God the most anti-triumphalistic, triumphal procession imaginable. Because what the Apostle Paul would want us to say as teaching elders, as ruling elders, as leaders in the church, what the Apostle Paul would want want us to hear him say is that the only leader in the church worth his salt is the one who's been knocked off the chariot of his own glory. Have we been knocked off the chariots of our own glory? Have we died 
to our desire for power and for influence. There's a quote that I come back to a lot personally, uh, and every time I read it, it challenges me every time I come back to it. And it's a quote by the author Henry Nouwen in his book, In the Name of Jesus, and he says this, power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It is easier to control people than to love people. Much Christian leadership is exercised by people who do not know how to develop healthy, intimate relationships and have opted for power and control instead. Many Christian empire builders have been people unable to give and receive love. And I read that and I ask myself, am I one who's able to give and receive love? Or am I one who has substituted the use of power, so I don't have to do the hard work of love. Have you been knocked off the chariot of your glory? Have you been knocked out of the seat of your own glory? Because in the end, you and I know that we are never actually in whatever chariot that is for very long because you're either going to be conquered by the crucified king as it ought to be or you'll be conquered by the idol of your own making. You will either be dragged along in triumphal procession by Jesus the king or you'll be dragged along by your desire for power and ambition and influence. Have you been knocked off the chariot of your own glory? It's the image of this strange procession of the kingdom of God. Let's work together to make the PCA a place where we're led in triumphal procession by the crucified king. The second image that we see here is the image of a fragrant aroma. We turn our attention to verses 15 through 17 where he says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, the other fragrance from life to life, and who is sufficient for these things? The Apostle Paul is still drawing on this image of this triumphal procession, but he turns our imagination away from the sights and sounds of this parade. And he turns our imagination towards the smell, the incense that was burned, the incense that would linger in the air, the incense that would spread into every corner and into every household. And he takes the incense, the image of that aroma, and he uses it as a second metaphor for the way of weakness. Now, what do we know about smell? What we do know about is that the sense of smell is actually the sense that is most connected to two things. First, the sense of smell is connected to memory more than any other sense. And so people will say when you smell something, that's oftentimes what causes memories to flood back into. You get transported back into that place. And so for me, uh, it's a smell of lilacs. When I was growing up as a kid, we had large lilac bushes on the side of our home. And so every time I smell a lilac, I bought my Yankee candle, scented candle lilac. And every time I smell it, it takes me back to my backyard, to my baseball bats, to my nine-year-old bowl cut, and it transports me. But smell is also associated with attraction, that pheromones are olfactory senses. It's the reason why we have a $30 billion perfume industry in the U.S. alone, that smell is a powerful thing. Now you take those two things together, 
memory, and attraction. And what that means is to be the aroma of Christ is to lead a life that both reminds and attracts people to Jesus. It's to live in such a way that transports the world into his very presence. It means to live with the mission and the message of Jesus, but also to live in the manner of Jesus. It means to bring the word of Christ with our mouths, but it means to be the aroma of Christ with our lives that lingers in the air, that gets into every corner of every home. The aroma of Christ, and not just the word of Christ. And when Paul talks about being the Rome of Christ, he's not just talking about our individual lives, he's also talking about our life together as a church, our life together as the body of Christ, that our life together is meant to be strange and yet attractive to the watching world. And so my uh, mentor, in many respects, spiritual father, and as uh, Julius Kim taught us earlier today, as my young in the faith, uh, Tim Keller, he wrote an ebook uh, where he talks about the early church having this category-defying social ethic. And the early church had this social ethic that simply could not be made sense of using the resources of the world at the time. And that, category, that, that ethic had five different elements to it. First, it was uh, multi-ethnic, that it brought people of all different backgrounds together. Secondly, there was a sacrificial commitment to the poor and the marginalized. Third, it was non-retaliatory. There was an ethic of forgiveness, of radical love, of compassion, of costly love. Fourth, it was against abortion and infanticide, that it was pro-life. And fifth, it embodied a revolutionary sex ethic that said sex was to only to be between one man and one woman within the context of marriage. And he goes on to say, now if you look at the the, uh, qualities number one and number two, Those are things that we might associate with the left, multi-ethnic commitment to the poor. If you look at characteristics four and five, those are the ones that we might associate with the right. Uh, Anti, against abortion, against a fantasy, a revolutionary sex ethic. And that third one, non-retaliatory, ethic of compassion and forgiveness, sadly is the one that perhaps is associated with neither And yet that is the aroma of Christ. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, let's be the aroma of Christ in our life together. Let us become the aroma of Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means a lot of things. But when our African-American brothers and sisters tell us about the realities of ongoing racism in people's lives and the structures of our society, to be the aroma of Christ is to listen and to stand with them in love. When Asian-American and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters cry out because of violence and hatred, the aroma of Christ is to stand with them in love. When our Latino brothers and sisters come to us with stories of what immigration feels like in this nation for them, the aroma of Christ is to stand with them in love. 
When our sisters cry out because they feel unseen, unvalued, unheard, the aroma of Christ is to stand with them in love. When the survivors of abuse have the courage to speak out against what's happened to them both maybe in the church and also out in the larger world, the aroma of Christ is to stand with them in love. When our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters share of the costliness of their discipleship, it is to stand with them in love. That's the aroma of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us be the aroma of Christ in here because the world needs to be transported into the presence of Jesus. But there's something strange about this aroma, isn't there? In verses 15 and 16, the same aroma that arises up from the sacrifice of Jesus. For some, this aroma has a stench of death. For others, the same aroma has the very fragrance of life. The aroma of Christ is an aroma that will both offend and attract. But let's work together so that we would never remove the offense of the gospel. But let's also work together to not offend where Christ is fragrant. The aroma of Christ. That the way of the unhindered kingdom of God is the way of weakness. The third image, first we looked at a strange procession. Secondly, we looked at a fragrant aroma. Third and finally, there's also a supernatural letter here. And here we're turning chapter three, verses one through three, where Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Now the Apostle Paul here is responding to a very specific criticism that these opponents, these false apostles were saying, here is this Apostle Paul, he doesn't come with any commendation. He doesn't come with anybody vouching for him. There's nobody endorsing him as an, as an authentic apostle. But we have these credentials. And Paul's response is to say, listen, to scribble with ink on a sheet of papyrus. That is not the power of God. Anybody can do that. And in fact, to carve the moral law onto tablets of stone... That took the very finger of God, but even that was not the power of God for salvation. He says, through the gospel that I shared with you, the spirit of the living God didn't write on paper, didn't carve words in stone. The spirit of the living God placed the word of God's love in your heart. And he burned the good news of God's grace in your heart. That's the letter that matters. You yourselves are my letter of commendation. Now listen, here's a, here's a critical question here. 
What was it that burned the word of God on the heart of the Corinthians? What was it that finally broke through the hardness of their hearts? What was it that finally pierced the human heart? What was it that did it for you? What broke through to you? What was it that took the law, the, the word of God, and burned it into your heart? What was it? Was it an act of God's divine force? Was it a display of magnificent power? Was it cosmic strength flexed before you? What was it that burned the word of God into your heart? It wasn't divine strength and power. It was the stunning, breathtaking, divine weakness of God on the cross. That it takes maybe some social power to write with ink on paper. It takes incredible moral power to carve a lawn to stone. But it takes divine weakness to atone for our sins. To, to achieve forgiveness. To give us hearts of flesh. And so Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, this is what melted our hearts. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, he alone who was the great conquering king, Jesus Christ stepped down out of the chariot of his own glory. The great emperor, the great king, the great victorious one, the great conqueror, stepped out of the chariot of his own glory, took on the chains of our sin, was paraded through the streets of the city, was stripped and humiliated, was beaten and bloodied. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, degraded before our very eyes, led in procession by the pretensions of an idolatrous empire, by idolatrous hearts, by a world obsessed with power. Jesus Christ paraded in weakness in order to unmask all of our pretensions to use power in the ways of this world. And as Jesus hung upon that cross in the darkness, outside of the city gates, utterly alone, crying out to his Father, it was that moment of divine weakness that melted your heart and my heart. It was that moment of divine weakness that atoned for your sin and my sin. It was that moment of divine weakness that took our heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh. The only thing that will knock you and I out of the chariots of our own glory is to see the only one who deserves to be in that chariot of glory humiliated in our place. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, if he did that, how dare you and I remain in the chariot of our glory? Have you seen him do that for you? Have you seen him lay down his life? Have you seen how divine weakness is the very power of God for salvation? Have you seen 
that in the unhindered kingdom of God, weakness is true power. And so friends, in a society with collapsing levels of trust, in a culture that asks, is there anybody who can be trusted with power? In a culture that looks at our institutions immediately with suspicion, this is the only love that can be trusted. This is the love that can save the world. The only true power is the power that, look, that will look like weakness. And so I want to exhort us all. Let's get out of the chariots of our own glory. Let's let Jesus lead you and me, lead us, lead the PCA in his triumphal procession, humiliated, weakened, defeated. Let's allow Christ to make us into the aroma of Christ so that the message of God might be written upon the hearts of the lost. Would you do that? Would you come to him? Would you lay down all pretensions of strength? Because in the unhindered kingdom of God, true power will look like weakness. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, lead us to repentance because it is far easier to try to exert power over others than to love them. It's far easier to try to be God than to love God. Father, forgive us. Help us to lay down the swords of our own power. Let us look at Christ leaving the chariot of his glory for us. And let us be the people who live today as citizens of the unhindered kingdom of God. And Lord, help us to be the people of weakness because that's where true spiritual power resides. Make us, O oh Lord, the aroma of Christ because the world needs to be transported into your presence. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.